Welcome to MAP Podcast. MAP or Ministerial Apprenticeship Program is the official training facility of Lighthouse for pastors and church leaders. This is Lecture 4 of Pastor Sam Sadis Old Testament and New Testament Survey Class recorded last June 27th. Good afternoon. Thank you, Pastor Leo. Thank you, Pastor Alex. Um, it was very ambitious on my part to think I could cover the entire Bible in four weeks, four sessions, 12 hours. Uh, I think that was wishful thinking. So I'm grateful for Pastor Leo giving the opportunity for us to study the New Testament. But I've discussed this with Sister Leia um, before Pastor Alex, who is a very uh, close protege of Mbong Bagalawis, a great man who taught hermeneutics in ASCM and Pastor Alex worked very closely with him for several years and I think the person most qualified to teach hermeneutics besides Pastor Albert is Pastor Alex partly because of mentoring and partly because of experience so hopefully before he teaches hermeneutics we will study the New Testament so that when he starts teaching biblical interpretation, you have a foundation to fall back on so he does not go into great detail about who wrote the book, when it was written, why it was written, what's the theological content from a general standpoint. Today, I would like to jump right into the wisdom literature. We've already covered um, Torah and the prophets. And to a certain extent, the historical books of the Old Testament also fall in the Old Testament writings. The Old Testament, if you remember, is divided into Torah, the first five books, writings, the historical books, and the wisdom literature and prophets. Uh, primarily because Jeremiah talks about the three important figures in Israel's society, the priest whose task is to teach the law, the prophet who proclaimed the word of God, and the wise person or the sage, uh, someone who is experienced, educated, and is old enough and has experienced certain variations of life. Not all good, not all bad, but has seen the best and the worst of life, a wise man or a sage. This person is the one that gave advice. You can read about this in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 18. He explains very clearly how the three figures, the priest, the prophet, and the sage, came together to establish God's presence to establish the ideal sense of fellowship in ancient Israel. Unfortunately, this was not always the case. Sometimes the priests did not do what they were supposed to do, and the system fell apart. Because the system only works if all three carry out their responsibilities simultaneously and faithfully. If one of them fails, then the whole thing comes down. So when the priesthood failed, and the worship of God was no longer 
preserved in its original protocol and people began to worship idols and false gods and follow uh, foreign gods and goddesses. Then the nation fell apart. Occasionally, it was the office of the prophet, like we discussed last time we met, false prophets. When false prophets went around and spoke false words, attributing them to God and speaking from their own opinion and claiming to have heard from God, then the office of the prophet was corrupted, prophecy was corrupted, and the system fell apart. When wise men did stupid things, people were responsible for guiding society. Counselors and teachers and older people who are supposed to guide the next generation in their walk with the Lord, in their distinct identity as the chosen among nations, when the wisdom teachers, when the wise men in society made mistakes and began to blunder, system fell apart. So the only way Israel, as appointed by the Lord, functioned as a treasured possession in ancient times is, according to Jeremiah 18, 18, when all these three central figures, now the greatest central figure is God himself. He entrusts certain measure of responsibility to individuals, the priest, the prophet, and the wise man. All three must work in partnership. The priest must not compete with the prophet, which happens sometimes. The prophet must not compete with the priest or the wise man, which also happens sometimes. When all of them work together and simultaneously and faithfully carry out their responsibilities, then society thrived. The nation prospered. And people were free and they were full. Look at it from a Sunday worship service standpoint. The person who is assigned the opening prayer, the invocation, or the reading of God's word, and the person who's supposed to do the short exhortation before praise and worship, and the person who's supposed to lead praise and worship, and the band leader, and the pastor who preaches the sermon, and the people that carry out the bits and pieces, exhortation for the offering, welcoming the newcomers, and the person who's supposed to assist in the altar call, the counselors. All of us, when we all are equally anointed by the Holy Spirit, and we all equally submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit, it's a beautiful service. God's presence is there. The Holy Spirit moves around freely. And from the start of the service until the end of the service, God and his power are encountered by the people. But if one of us shows up, and our heart is not right with God. Or we have been living in sin, but we show up to serve anyway. Or we have disagreement or lack of peace with another brother. If the band leader and the praise and worship leader can't agree. If the one who exhorts for the offering has an axe to grind against the pastor. And the one who's doing the opening prayer has some issues with the altar call counselors. That angst, that's this, that disagreement, that's, that lack of unity disrupts the service. Now, each may individually do a great job. 
the guy who exhorts, the guy who sings, the person who sings and the person who plays music and the person who preaches, we may all do individually great job. The sermon could be great by itself. The altar call could be powerful, even if no one came forward. The praise and worship could be vibrant and the music could bring down the house and the person who did the exhortation could speak great words of encouragement and hope. But when you put all of them together, it's a mismatch. The reason it's a mismatch is because we're all working for ourselves. We're not working for God. Our ministry is not unto the Lord. Our ministry is to lift up our own chair or to proclaim our glory to the people. So we're more concerned about my prayer sounding good and my preaching sounding great and my music sounding great. So we all perform in the presence of the Lord, but we don't serve. Service is to others. Performance is mostly for self. So when we perform, what we're doing is self-service. We want to look good. When you go to church, it could be a great church. It could be a famous pastor. It could be a famous praise and worship leader. But when the service is over and you're going home, there is nothing but entertainment. There is no encounter. We don't go to church for entertainment. There are plenty of places to go for entertainment. So that was what was happening in Israel. When the priest and the prophet and the wise man did not come together, equally serving God and his children, the whole nation suffered. Either because the priest was corrupt, the prophet was false, or the wise man was stupid. So, Jeremiah 18, 18 shows society is squarely founded on these three pillars. Now, here's a practical observation. When you build something on three pillars, it falls apart. A four-legged chair is a lot more stable than a three-legged stool because each leg supports a corner. So also, if the priest, the prophet, and the wise man were the three figures in Israelite society, who is the fourth and the most important pillar? God. So anytime society tried to function, primarily from a priestly standpoint or a prophetic standpoint or a wisdom standpoint, it collapsed on itself. It looked stable for a while, but it could not sustain that model of unity and harmony. Why? God was missing. It's only when the priest depended on God and the prophet depended on God and the wisdom teacher depended on God. When God held all these three human figures in place. And they were consistently given to the worship and the service of God. Society prospered, thrived, and there was peace and plenty in the land. So you can imagine why the Old Testament is so important for us to read. Because if we choose only the prophetic books, because they're easy to preach from, if we choose only the historical books and the writings, because they're easy to understand, or if we choose only the Torah, because it's the first five books, and we all start reading the Bible, Genesis to Revelation in January. So uh, we're still you know, fresh with our resolutions, 
And by the time March comes, we hit Leviticus. And by that time, it gets difficult. And then April comes, and then there are holidays, and children stay home. And you read numbers, and you lose your mind, and you quit studying. So, Jeremiah 1818. It is important in Israelite society for the priest, the prophet, and the wise man to work together. The priest to safeguard proper worship, the prophet to speak forth God's word, and the wise man to establish social justice. Each had to carry out their responsibility simultaneously with the other together united in the service of Yahweh who established the nation and the nation was founded on righteousness and the nation prospered and grew. So wisdom literature is very important. So when we're looking at the wisdom uh, literature, we have to be uh, a little bit careful because it's very easy to contrast Old Testament wisdom with modern day quotes. Old Testament wisdom is the product of centuries after centuries of recycling. When something was spoken, generation after generation evaluated the validity, the authenticity of that statement. And anything that seemed irrelevant to a generation they did not pass it forward. Like, for example, your grandparents entrusted to you a statement. It may have made sense to them, but in your generation, it ceased to be relevant. So when you pass on the wisdom that you gathered from your parents and your grandparents to the next generation, anything that is irrelevant to you no longer passed forth. It died with you. So when we're looking at wisdom literature, this is old and equally relevant for generations. Wisdom has several themes. And someday when we study the wisdom literature or certain books of the wisdom literature in detail, we can study that. But you have the poetic books. See, most wisdom is written in poetic form, but you have some books that are more poetry oriented. For instance, Psalms, they're very poetic. Portions of Job, very poetic. Certain aspects of Proverbs, very poetic. Certain verses in Ecclesiastes presented in very poetic form. Why did the writers of wisdom choose poetry? Poetry is the language of the heart. Like when you listen to a song, you try to understand the words of the song, but a song is best experienced when you open your heart to it. Stories move us. But when our boyfriends dump us or our girlfriends dump us, or we have problems with our husbands or our wives or our children, when we listen to praise and worship songs or just secular music, we're easily moved emotionally because there's something about words that go with music, uh, a certain rhyme and meter to them that speak directly to the heart. So wisdom literature is mostly found in poetic form. 
That doesn't mean prose does not exist, but it's mostly poetry. Wisdom applies to every individual. And the more you embrace wisdom, the more appropriate it becomes to you. For instance, in personal skills. In the Old Testament, life skills were passed from one generation to the other through observation, explanation, and apprentice. As a child, you watch your father build a cabinet. You watch your father, a carpenter, build a thousand cabinets before you, you, you're even entrusted a hammer and a nail. So little boys grew up watching their dads and little girls grew up watching their moms. Dad in the craft area, mom in the kitchen area. So children grew up, men helping dads with the family craft, women helping mom with kitchen duties and taking care of children. Since it was not a metropolitan, sophisticated society where many people did many things, in ancient Israel, one family pretty much carried the flame for a certain craft. If you're a carpenter, chances are your son, at least one of your sons, carries on family tradition, perhaps the eldest. And how does he learn the craft? By observing dad. And while he was observing dad, he would ask dad, why do you cut it this way and not that way? Why is the nail in that corner and not in the middle? Why is this kind of wood matched with that kind of wood? Why is the brace this way? Why are there so many legs? Why is it round? Why is it square? And the father would explain. Observation. Explanation. Once you have observed something long enough, and you have asked all the right questions and received all the right answer, you graduate to apprentice. You cannot build your own cabinet. You assist the master carpenter in the house, who is your father or your grandfather. Observation, explanation, apprentice. Wisdom was passed on from generation to generation. Just because your dad was a teacher does not mean you get to teach also. The society did not approach it that way. For teachers, you must show uncommon clarity, unnatural intellect, and common sense. What good is a wisdom teacher who knows the theory but does not put into practice? So in ancient Israel, you have observation, explanation, apprentice for skill. This is wisdom applied as a personal dynamic. Carpentry, blacksmith, fishing, farming, whatever it was. One half of your children, disproportionately speaking, the boys learned the family craft from dad and the girls trained to be good mothers and good wives, good sisters, good daughters in the home. And since there was a very clear line dividing social obligations, dad on the outside, mom on the inside, and there was no fighting for extra identity, unlike now, 
we endured about six decades of women wanting to be men. Now we have to endure probably another six decades of men wanting to be women, LGBTQ. There's a confusion in identity. In ancient Israel, that identity was not confused. Why? Your identity in your relationship with God was guarded by your worship of God, protected by a priesthood. Your obedience to God's word was protected by a prophet of the Lord. Your life skills, how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to be a good son, good daughter, a good father, good mother, a good businessman, a good citizen, a good Israelite, was safeguarded by the wisdom teachers. So all areas of your life, in the house, outside the house, in your heart and in your head, they were all protected and provided for by the Lord in the priest, the prophet, and the wise man. So when it came to personal skills, you learned the craft from your mom or your dad, or in the absence of a mom and a dad, another adult who took over the responsibility of caring for a young person. Example, Abraham and Lot. As a personal dynamic, wisdom was also a philosophy of life. Cause and effect. If you do this, these are the consequences. If you do that, those are the consequences. Because the cause and effect aspect of the law was very clear. If you choose obedience, you live. If you choose idolatry, rebellion, and disobedience, you die. The choice was very clear. Nowadays, the choice is very unclear. That's why some of our children, when they do not receive proper counseling in high school, when they go to college, they do not know what course to enroll. That's why you have a period where you can drop, add classes, or change course. Beyond a certain point, your university will not allow you to change course anymore. You went into the College of Engineering. After one semester, you realized this is Armageddon. Now you want to go to humanities. So you change course. In ancient Israel, identity was very, very safe, carefully protected. Why? Because way of life was important for them. Walking with the Lord as a way of life. Worshipping the Lord as a way of life. Praying and fasting as a way of life. Feasts and festivals, keeping the Sabbath, keeping the Passover, showing up for the Day of Atonement, fulfilling the laws and commandments that God entrusted to the nation through Moses. This was their way of life. When they were faithful to that way, life was great. When they were unfaithful to that way, life was bad. They were attacked, they were taken into captivity, or oppressed by their enemies. So wisdom, as a personal dynamic, was in the area of personal skills, life skills. Dad passed on to you what he knew, what he learned from your grand, his, his father. And your job is to add your own to that and pass it on to your children. So by the time the 10th generation 
starts doing what great, 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 great grandfather did, his craft has become better. So we each add to what was entrusted to us and pass it forward. How shameful if it dies with us. That was very embarrassing in Israel. Your great-grandfather was a carpenter. Your grandfather was a carpenter. You were a carpenter, but your son does not know how to make anything. That means your great-grandfather did not fail your grandfather. Your grandfather did not fail your father. Your father did not fail you, but you have not just failed your son. You have also failed your great-grandfather, your grandfather, and your father who entrusted the family craft to you, but it died with you. Success, John Maxwell tells us, without a successor is failure. So in ancient Israel, whatever was entrusted to you, whether it was spiritual, faith, whether it was matters of the faith, worship, prayer, sacrifice, protocol, whether it was wisdom, experience, and enlightenment, as God brought it to us. If it died with us, then we have not made any significant contribution to society. Your job, my job, is to pass what I have to someone else. So in the event that I die, what was entrusted to me does not die with me. So here's your first unofficial homework for this class. Find the people in your church, in your family, in your inner circle. Observe them. Some people you can discuss Genesis with. Some people you can discuss Isaiah with. Some people you can discuss the historical books with. Identify what attracts whom. Slowly start dividing your mentees, the people that depend on you, and then start discussing the Word of God. The goal is to bring out what is already in them and to invest in them what has been entrusted to you. Because if all that I know dies with me, then I'm a worthless student and a useless teacher. It is for this reason, as you can understand, when you ask questions, my answers are very long. My goal is to entrust to you as much as I can of what I know about that particular topic. If the answer that I give does not satisfy me, it's irrelevant for me if it satisfies somebody else. You may be satisfied with my answer, but if you ask me a question, and I'm not satisfied with the answer I give, I will keep answering the question. Our task as students of the Word of God, if you take into consideration Jeremiah 18.18, 18, now see, in the New Testament, all these three offices have come together. We're a royal priesthood. We're entrusted the Word of God. Disciple all nations. Discipleship does not happen outside of the word of God. And finally, 
We are called to live circumspectly. Live as one who is wise, not as one who is foolish, the Apostle Paul tells us. So in many ways, because in Jesus, these three offices came together as disciples of Jesus Christ, we must carry out all these three individual functions as a disciple. We can discuss the individual aspects of wisdom literature at some other time, but how was wisdom passed on from one generation to another generation? In the ancient Near East, we're talking about the area around Israel, the Sumerians, Akkadians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Persians, the Assyrians, ancient Near East. Wisdom was passed on from one person to another person, from one generation to another generation through instruction. When we say instruction, we're not talking about university. Instruction as in one person investing all he or she knew into another person. Mentoring. Not tormentoring, mentoring. Instruction. Another way wisdom was passed was through songs. Wise people wrote songs. Somebody put music to it. Everybody sat around a campfire and sang the songs. And that's how wisdom was passed. A song is a lot more easy to memorize than a story. If a story is put in a song form, it's easier to memorize. That's the reason in the Philippines, any song plays on the radio or on the TV, just about 98.5% of Filipinos know the, know the entire song. When I first came to the Philippines, I was shocked. I was in a jeepney and everybody's lips were singing the song, whatever song. Every song that came out of the radio, everybody knew. I was like, wow. And then I became a teacher. Then I realized that they may know every song in the book, but they forgot other stuff. Instruction, hymns. Three, the third way that wisdom was passed on from one generation to another generation was as a proverb, a pithy saying, a quotable quote. And in a rabbinic sense, wisdom was also passed on as a dialogue. You have a conversation with someone and you exchange life experiences and wisdom. If you take into consideration the theological framework of wisdom literature, like when we study wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, maybe you can throw in Lamentations. When you're studying wisdom literature, what's the basic theology of wisdom literature? One, wisdom literature establishes God is sovereign. He's not gullible. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be exploited. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be threatened. 
He cannot be deceived. He's sovereign. His will is sovereign. His word is true. His heart is pure. His love is great. His anger is brief. And his compassion is steadfast. His mercy is new every morning. God is sovereign. Two, what does God's sovereignty mean for us? Because God is sovereign, and because God has chosen to reveal himself to his children, it is important for Israel, and by extension, humanity, to be responsible. Now that you know how to live life, it's your responsibility to live it. Once you know what there is to know, you and your actions and your, your speech and your feelings and your thoughts must follow that which is revealed. When you did not know, you did not do what you were supposed to do. But now that God has revealed himself, our actions, our choices, our decisions, everything about us must orient itself according to that which is revealed by our sovereign God. And because God does not change his position, once we start following his sovereign will and word, we must remain steady, consistent. Three, as chaotic as life may become, and as disorderly as the world may seem to be, there is order in the universe. Who establishes this order? God does. Then how come bad things happen? There's an explanation. Is God the author of bad things and evil? No. Four, we must recognize our mortality and God's immortality. This life will end. And no book says this better than the book of Ecclesiastes. For those of you that haven't been listening to Pastor Albert's Bible study every morning, that's a great book. That's why for that reason, I will not go into detail about Ecclesiastes because Pastor Albert did a great job. I've always wanted to teach that book, but I don't think I have enough life experience to teach that book. As a husband, as a father, as a shepherd of a church, that man has a lot more credibility to teach that book. I can teach you about coffee. That's about it. So let's look at the wisdom books. Let's start off with Job. I think to a certain extent, I, I carried out, I dealt with certain aspects of job but let's go through it systematically the author of job we don't know did job write this book did eliphaz bildad zophar elihu write this book did somebody else write this book honestly i have no idea 
there are so many theories, but they're not conclusive. So strictly speaking, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, this story and the inclusion, but we do not know the human author of the book of Job. What do we know about this anonymous author? Whoever this person was, mostly prob most probably a male, he was an Israelite because this tradition circulated among Israel, but he does not seem to know Israelite history. That means, like I offered, it could be dated between Noah and Abraham, between Abraham and Moses, or after Moses, or before Noah. I date the book of Job sometime between Abraham and Moses. That is, that's at least my personal opinion. What does the book of Job concern itself with? The most important subject of Job is theodicy. The justice of God in light of human suffering. How can a loving God allow suffering? How can a sovereign God not do anything about human suffering? So, when we study the book, there are three assumptions that we can postulate. One, God is not almighty. Why? He seems to lack the power to alleviate suffering. Second assumption, God is not just. Why? There seems to be good and evil in him. Three, man is innocent. He does not deserve the suffering that he experiences in this world. All these three assumptions are wrong. Unfortunately, these three assumptions are where the three friends of Job and Elihu establish their argument. Why? If you can take the discussion of the four friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu, and you turn it into one statement, this is what it is. A person's suffering is indicative of his measure of guilt in the eyes of God. Why would you suffer unless you're guilty? If you are righteous, why would you suffer? If you are a good man, why would bad things happen to you? So their conclusion was. Because you're suffering, even though we thought you were a great man, and you claim to be a good man, you are not as great nor as good as you think or I think. There is something in you that deserves this measure of suffering. You suffer because you're guilty in the eyes of God. Because if you are not guilty, you would not suffer. But when you read the entire book of Job, the book of Job gives us a different perspective. In this world, along with the presence of God, 
there also exists an alien presence, not Martian, Jupiterian, or Saturnian, but demonic. Satan. While God means everything for good, Satan has a different agenda. His goal is to produce suffering. So, sin enters the world, and sin produces suffering in the world. But the hope that the book of Job offers us is in the midst of our suffering, we who suffer may still experience the goodness and greatness of God. Now, one of the frustrating things about the book of Job is Job does not really answer the question, why do righteous people suffer? Voila. There is no answer where you can say, righteous people suffer because, one, two, three. No, there is no answer. But there's another angle I would like for you to take when you study Job. Instead of asking, why do righteous people suffer? The better question to ask is, what do righteous people do when they suffer? Because we know what unrighteous people do when they suffer. If your walk with the Lord, with the Lord is established, and bad things happen to you, what do you do when God fails to meet your expectations. Because when human beings fail to meet our expectations, we know what to do. We cut them out. We ignore them. We avoid them. We confront them. And sometimes we should not, but we retaliate or return the favor. But see, you can't do this to God. So, the better question to ask when we study the book of Job is, what do righteous people do when they suffer? That's Job. Job was a righteous man. He does not deserve the suffering, but yet he suffers. His friends come to comfort him and only ruin his mood. His wife wants him to die. What does Job do? Does he do what everybody does? Or does he do what nobody else does? Even though he slays me, yet I will praise him. Naked I have come into this world, looks like naked I will be leaving this world. So the general question everyone asks the easier question is, why do righteous people suffer? The better question to ask is, what do righteous people do when they suffer? What do you do when you're a faithful giver to your church and you lose your job? What do you do when you invited 
your pastor to come to your house and dedicate the home and three weeks later thieves break in and steal everything what do you do when your pastor anoints your brand new car with oil and proclaims safety and security for everyone in there and five days later you have a serious accident and end up with a broken leg and a dislocated shoulder What do you do when you pray for others and they get healed and you go to the doctor and they tell you you have a lump in your breast or a node in your lungs? The easier question is, why do bad things happen to good people? The more serious question and the one that will really lead you into understanding Job better than other people is, what do good people do when bad things happen to them do we abandon our faith do we abandon our walk with god do we renounce jesus christ or do we persevere do we endure job is an amazing book and your goal should not be to understand it in one reading your goal should be you start reading job 2020 hopefully by 2030 you understand five percent the goal is not to figure out the book the goal is to allow the book to help you figure out yourself getting through the bible is easy getting the bible through ourselves that's difficult so when you come to the book of Job, ask the question, what do righteous people do when they suffer? Here are some basic ideas about the book of Job. Calamity comes from the devil, not from God. Chapter 1, verse 12. Occasionally, faith must endure unanswered questions and affliction to be purified regularly our faith goes through crisis the crisis is critical to our faith because each crisis helps purify our faith we don't invite these crises upon ourselves but we thank god when we go through difficult situations because it does one of two things either we fall out of our relationship with god or we become better followers of jesus christ hopefully the second is more true with us three in times of trouble our first response would be to praise and worship god not complain and why that's everybody's specialty. Four, in times of great crisis, our experience, our education are inadequate to understand what is happening to us. We need the wisdom of God. So, examples Job's, Job's wife 
she measured the goodness of God based on life experience. This is dangerous. When you have everything you want, God is good. When you have nothing you need, God is bad. Our circumstances are not indicators to God's goodness and God's greatness. Because if they are, then God's goodness and greatness changes. Today you get 13th month pay, God is great. Next year you don't get 13th month pay, God is not great. But that was Job's wife. She was happy when her children were alive and her husband was rich. But now that he's poor and broke and their kids are dead, she wants him to die too. Eliphaz, chapter 4, verse 13. His wisdom came from dreams. Dude sleeps a lot. Bildad was a student of history, chapter 8, verse 8. So he drew life lessons from historical events and personalities. Zophar depended on gut feeling. I don't know, I don't have any firm example, but it doesn't feel right. Intuition. He relied on intuitive knowledge. Chapter twenty, verse three. And the book of Job shows us that all these four opinions are wrong. In times of crisis, all we need is the wisdom of God or the wisdom from God. When you read chapter 42, and you should read chapter 42, especially verses 1 through 5. When you read chapter 42, verses 1 through 5, you realize that suffering, even though it's not from God, is sometimes used by God as a catalyst for spiritual growth. For those of you that are students of science, a catalyst is something that speeds up a reaction. Suffering is a catalyst for spiritual growth, maturity. Also, chapter 42, if we do not let me rephrase that. If we are not careful, we could become better in times of crisis. It's very easy. Why me? It always happens to me. Sana, it happened to my neighbor. He seems to be okay. Maybe it should happen to the other church. They have more money. Sana, my algebra teacher got sick today, so there won't be any exam. Yo, 
actually I used to do that. Every time I did not prepare well for the test, I would pray that my teacher would not come to school or it would rain or earthquake or storm or something. It never happened. God was like, look, look at this stupid kid. Yeah. Never happened. Bitterness, resentment, anger can result in critical moments in life. When you feel sorry for yourself, you feel like everyone is out to get you. You're right. Everyone's wrong. Verse 12, chapter 42. God provides for his children in the midst of their suffering. Now, let me qualify provides. We're not talking about material only. Sometimes that too. But sometimes perspective. Perspective is a lot more important than material. There's nothing wrong with material. We could always use material, but perspective is more important. That should get you started with the book of Job. All right. It's 2.57. Take a five-minute break. Get some water. Go to the bathroom. Rush to the bathroom. Drink while you're peeing and come back. We will start at 3.05. Or seven minutes, eight minutes na lang. 3.05. You have eight minutes. Yeah. Please come back. Don't abandon me here. Love you guys. Enjoy you, your short, short break. You're Thank welcome. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Pastor Sam. Thank you, Pastor. You're welcome. All right, it's 3.05. I hope everyone's here. Let's start. Let's go to, I would like to spend a solid hour in the book of Psalms because we tend to preach and teach the Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament. I think when it comes to devotions and uh, small groups, or even for personal encouragement of all the books in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms is probably one of the most widely consulted. I will present the introduction to the Psalms first, and then I want to go into a little bit of detail and several ways of looking at the book of Psalms. So, all right, if you're here, let's start. The word Psalms means song of praise. This was the songbook that the Israelites used during the time of the Second Temple. While there were songs available to Israel before the Babylonian exile, in their current form, the 150 Psalms were put together during the time of the exile and after the exile. So the Psalms as a songbook in their current form, in their final form, were sung in Israel during the time of the second temple, meaning 
the the temple that was repaired after the Jews returned from Babylon. The first temple was Solomon's temple. The second temple was the repairs made after the exiles returned. And then, of course, during the time of Herod. So, the returned exiles, those that returned from Babylon, they used the book of Psalms as a daily devotional and for temple worship. This is how they rebuilt community, society, um, because there was discontinuity, right? Before the exile, they're already corrupt. In the exile, many of the older people died. And as such, some of the stories were misplaced. Some of the truth was corrupt. So when they returned, when they were trying to repair the, the walls, the temple, and restore community, they relied very heavily on the book of Psalms. So you could say the book of Psalms was part of the restoration of Israel when they returned from Babylon. If you look in your Psalms, the 150, there are five books. Chap, uh, Psalm 1 through 41, the first book. Psalm 42 to 72, the second book. Psalm 73 to 87, the third book. Yeah, and then 88, or does it start at 90? I'm confused. Basta, there's a fourth book. It ends at Psalm 106. And then the last section is 107 to 50. How do we know that the book is ending? Like the ancients, how did they figure out, oi, this is the end for this section? Because if you notice in your Psalms, the last Psalm of every book ends with the doxology. Doxology is a statement of praise of God. I will present different themes. Some scholars see five distinct themes. Uh, the guy's name is uh, Samuel Terrian, not me, another Samuel, better Samuel. Uh, what's the first theme? Deliverance in time of warfare. God delivers Israel in times when enemies attack her. Two, God's presence is always found in Israel, except when idolatry and disobedience cause God to leave. Three, in times of abundant harvest, there must be abundant thanksgiving. Four, Psalms celebrate Israel's history. There are a lot of stories. Lot of stories. And they always talk about the past. And five, Psalms discuss personal communion with the Lord. Our personal relationship with the Lord. So, who wrote the Psalms? A lot of people. David's the most prolific writer of the Psalms. 73 psalms 
are attributed to David. At least some are disputed, but let's say generally speaking, 73 of the Psalms of the 150 are attributed to David. Moses wrote Psalm 90. Solomon wrote Psalm 72. Psalm 89 is attributed to a guy called Heman, H-E-M-A-N. Not He-Man, that's the cartoon, Heman. Psalm 89 is attributed to Ethan. Some of the Psalms come with headings. Uh, a Psalm of uh, Asaph, so on and so forth. Or the sons of Korah. There are some songs, some psalms, that don't have any inscription, no author. What are these psalms called? They're called the orphan psalms, the anonymous psalms, meaning we don't know who wrote them. But obviously, someone in Israel, because if an Israelite did not write it, it would not have been included. Someone known but does not like his name to be mentioned, wrote the psalm. Everybody knew who wrote it, but because he did not put his name on it, later generations did not know. How many kinds of psalms are there? Before I present to you my personal favorite, Walter Brueggemann, I will discuss others, and then we will discuss Brueggemann's understanding of the psalms, which I think is probably one of the most mind-blowing things I've ever read. He's one of my favorite scholars in the Old Testament. Difficult to read, but uh, extremely, extremely interesting. Um, how can we classify the Psalms? Some of the Psalms, Psalms are called songs of praise or hymns of praise. For example, Psalm 8, Psalm 9, Psalm 29, Psalm 33, 47. These are songs of praise. The prevailing theme of the psalm is praise God. Praise God for who he is. Praise God for what he has done. And praise God for what he's yet to do. Praise God for rescuing us. Praise God for blessing us, praise God for restoring us, praise God for forgiving us, so they're songs of praise. Some psalms are prayers and petitions. This is an individual's prayer or a prayer on behalf of the nation presented to God. So you can identify these as corporate petitions or personal petitions. Maybe it's one man representing the nation, or it's one person representing himself or herself. These prayers and petitions are usually in times of calamity, chaos, foreign invasion, famine, plague, etc. Disturbing times, like COVID-19. Uh, examples. Psalm 18. 44, 74, that's actually a very good psalm. And 
79 can be a prayer and petition too. Another classification of the Psalms is they're called royal Psalms, as in kingly Psalms. They celebrate God as king, not the earthly king, but this is a celebration of Yahweh as the monarch, the king over Israel. And speaking about his rule, his reign in Israel. What are good examples for a royal psalm? Psalm 2 is a great example. 18 is a royal psalm. Um, Twenty and twenty-one, they celebrate Yahweh as king, and forty-five. So you have songs of praise, you have songs of prayer and petition in times of calamity, disturbance. Uh, misfortune and you have songs of royalty royalty um, royal psalms let's separate the corporate and the personal petitions you could qualify individual prayers as Personal petition psalms. Psalm 3 is a personal prayer. Psalm 17 is a personal prayer. Psalm 22 is a personal prayer. Um, actually, 8, 7, 7, 8, and the next few psalms. I don't know how long it stretches. I forgot, but from seven onwards, several psalms actually, more than three or four, could be considered individual prayers and petitions. Another classification is Thanksgiving psalms. As the word goes, these are songs of thank you God for this, thank you God for that, so on and so forth. Um, these are individual expressions of gratitude. Psalm 18. Psalm 30, 32, 34. There are many, I'm just giving a few examples so you can study the distinction. Um, my favorite, they are the Messianic Psalms. These are the Psalms that talk about the Messiah. There are 14 that no one argues about. 14 Messianic Psalms. These 14 Messianic Psalms celebrate the various aspects of Jesus the Messiah. His life, ministry, death, resurrection, and his enthronement, seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places as the Apostle Paul says. Examples, uh, Psalm 8, 16, 22, 
4D. Forty-five, um, sixty-eight, seventy-two. Seventy-two is a very good sum. Um, yeah, that, that that that's a great sum to read. One thirty-two also is a messianic sum. There are other songs I can't remember all fourteen, but these are the general explanations. Um, there are some psalms that don't fall into any of the category, like. You don't know where to place them. It's all right. We don't need to force them into any classification. They could remain by themselves. Now, uh, Walter Brueggemann is a great Old Testament scholar. Uh, he must be very old now if he's still alive. I attended one of his lectures, and my professor in Bible school was a great fan of Dr. Brueggemann. And as such, some of his books were prescribed for us as textbooks. After I read one book, The Prophetic Imagination, I was hooked. I have like six or seven of his books. His take on the book of Psalms is um, very unique. I wanted to make sure I was very clear and true to his teaching, so I actually uh, got my notes out. So I might quote him several times. Um, Walter Brueggemann sees the book of Psalms from three distinct perspectives. Orientation, disorientation, and new orientation, or reorientation. Orientation is a time when everything in your life makes sense you're healthy you're happy you have enough money you have enough food everyone that you love is well you have no great challenges in life life is smooth and steady orientation you have no reason to complain you're not lacking anything you're not sick you're not broke you're not struggling. All the people you love are happy. So are you. That's a season of orientation. We all have these. The next season is the season of disorientation. It's the exact opposite of the season of orientation. Disorientation feels like nothing's going right with your life. You're sick. You're broke. Everybody you love is fighting with one another. There is no peace. You don't like your family. Your family doesn't like you. Your marriage is falling apart. Your ministry is not growing. Your back hurts. Your computer crashed. Your phone was stolen. A truck hits your Meralco line and you have no electricity. Everything that could go wrong with your life, it's gone now. Season of disorientation. Sometimes we go through this. One after the other, you get hit by trouble after trouble. 
and you start crying out to the Lord, Lord, no more now, no more. That's enough. That's enough. Please stop. Do something. Do something. That's disorientation. You've been robbed. You've been fired. You spilled coffee on yourself. You missed the bus going home. And while you're cutting through the park, a stray dog bit you in the leg. And while you're running away from the dog, you fell in a ditch and broke your foot. When you go to the hospital, PhilHealth doesn't want to cover you. And while you are there, you catch COVID. Voila, finish now. That's disorientation. Everything that could go wrong with you, it's gone wrong. The third season of life is new orientation. After you have endured a measure of suffering and purging and cleansing and discipline, God has intervened. And now you are slowly being restored to your normal state, if not better. You had a job, you earned 25000 a month. Then you lost a job and you ate through your savings and you lived out in the street. Now somebody gave you a job and they're offering you 50000 a month. New orientation. Life's getting better. God has pulled you out of the ditch you have fallen into and he has placed you in a new place where you are grateful and you are aware of God's goodness. According to Brueggemann, all of us at one time or another belong to these three places. Orientation, disorientation, or new orientation. 1995 and 2019 were seasons of disorientation for me. The two toughest years of my life, 1995 and 2019. I remember in 1996, I fasted and prayed December 31, and come January 1st, 1996, I told the Lord, Lord, I do not want to experience 1995 ever again. If that's part of your plan, take me. I do not want to live through this year anymore. I can take some kind of suffering, but not the kind of suffering like 1995. 2005 came, I'm like, yay, 10 years without any suffering. 2050 came, Lord, 20 years without suffering. And then 2019 came. It was worse than 1995. I'm like, Jesus, we had an arrangement. We agreed that you'll never do this to me again. What happened? You forgot? No. I don't know where your life is, but all of us fall in these three areas. Orientation, when life is right. Disorientation, where life is wrong. New orientation, where life is getting back to being better.
So according to Brueggemann, this is the rhythm of life. Some of us spend more time in one season and less time in the others, but everyone goes through this. Talk to any older person, they have experienced all three seasons in their life. And according to Brueggemann, the 150 Psalms that you find in the book of Psalms fall in these three broad categories, orientation, disorientation, and new orientation. What are the examples? Orientation Psalms celebrate creation. We celebrate what God has made for us. Orientation Psalms celebrate revelation. They celebrate creation. They also celebrate revelation. The Torah, the revealed word of God. And how important it is to our life. Three, orientation Psalms celebrate wisdom. The ability to make wise and properly informed decisions in life. The importance of living well. Not making mistakes in life. Orientation Psalms have a proper perspective of the past, the present, and their influence on the future. Actually, let me backtrack. The Psalms are most about past and present. Very few of them are about the future. But more than anything else, orientation Psalms are about trust. We trust God for everything. We trust in His goodness. We trust in his mercy. We trust in his ability to rescue us. Disorientation Psalms, they mostly are laments. Very feel sorry for yourself and for the things that have happened to you. When you read the lament Psalms, they are outbursts. They're not nice to read. They talk about their expressions of anger, frustration. Bitterness. And the writer of the Lament Psalm is confused. Why is God absent? Where is God? And also, as with the praise Psalms and the petition psalms, lament can be corporate, meaning you're weeping about the entire nation, or personal, Psalm 51, a personal lament. You also have what are known as the penitential psalms, psalms of repentance, psalms of sorrow, remorse. These psalms express regret. I should not have done what I have done. I did not do the right thing. Forgive me, so on and so forth. 
They can be corporate penitential psalms, Lord forgive our nation, or could be personal penitential psalms. Forgive me for what I have done. My favorite category is the reorientation. When you have gone through a difficult season, but God restores you. And God does restore. That's one of his favorite things to do. In the reorientation season, if you study the book of Psalms, the songs that fall in this category are Thanksgiving Psalms. You're always grateful. Lord, I cannot believe how my life was. Praise God. Thank you for what you have done. Because of you, my life is better. If not for you, I would have been dead. But because of you, my life is better. So these are psalms of thanksgiving. These are psalms of praise. These are psalms of Zion, Jerusalem songs. In which we thank God for our holy city. And then you have the royal psalms that fall in the reorientation category. And finally, you have the covenant renewal psalm. Um, I will ask Pastor Leo if we can do special discussions after the basic issues are done. What I would like to do is once a month, we talk about a specific subject from the Bible. And we explore the subject from a theological standpoint, a biblical standpoint, and a practical standpoint so that your preaching is doctrinally correct, theologically and biblically informed, and practically applicable. Because when we preach, not only must we rightly divide the word of God, we must also give something to the people for them to take home. Okay, I heard the word. This is what I'm supposed to do. So we will do that. But for now, I will end with this because... I want to get to Psalm 30. If you have your Bibles, can you please turn to Psalm 30 so we can study orientation, disorientation, and reorientation from one Psalm. Psalm 30 is an amazing Psalm because it explains the three seasons of life all in one place. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 30. I will be reading from... Um, Let's read from the New Living Translation. I usually prefer New American Standard, but let's look at New Living Translation. Okay, Psalm 30, Orientation, verse 6 and the first half of verse 7. When I was prosperous, I said, nothing can stop me now. Your favor, O Lord, made me as secure as a mountain. Orientation. The one who's writing these words is prosperous. And no one can resist him. He has everything he needs and everything he wants. Not only that, because of God, he is well established. Your favor, O Lord, verse 7, made me as secure as a mountain, meaning I cannot be easily shaken. It's a season of orientation. 
and suddenly the mood changes. Look at the second half of verse 7. Then you turned away from me. Everything was great. And for reasons I cannot completely understand, you turned away from me. And what happened? I was shattered. My life fell apart. What did I do? I cried to you, O Lord. I begged the Lord for mercy. Dibai told you, what will you gain if I die? If I sink into the grave, what will you benefit from it? If I'm cremated or if I'm buried and I rot and I become dust, can my dust praise you? These lips can praise you. But if I'm dead, my dead body can praise you. Can my dust praise you? Can my dust tell another person of your faithfulness? So, hear me, O Lord. What do I want from you? Have mercy on me. Verse 10. Help me, O Lord. So verse 6 and the first half of verse 7. He cannot be shaken. He cannot be moved because he's secure as a mountain. And then God turned away for reasons not known to this writer. And when God turned away, yeah, he was shattered. This unshakable, immovable mountain was broken to bits. Season of disorientation. Help me, Lord, have mercy on me. Help me, O Lord. Verse 11 and 12. Season of new orientation. After I cried out to you and prayed to you and asked you to help me, you showed up. You have turned my mourning into dancing. A new season has begun. You pulled me out of the hole. You gave me a haircut and a shave. You put cologne and new clothes on me. And now the song that died in my heart once forth is bubbling forth from my lips. You have turned my mourning into dancing. I was pathetic. I was pitiful. I was in a corner weeping and complaining. But now I'm out. I'm wearing a three-piece suit with fancy shoes and a fancy haircut. I'm out there and I'm dancing. You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. This is not one of those bored uh, waltzes. This is like uh, children dancing. You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You have taken away my clothes of mourning. I was sitting there wearing three-day-old underwear and six-day-old clothes. You've taken my mourning, turned it into dancing. You've taken away my clothes of mourning, and instead you replace them with Uniqlo and H&M. You've given me new garments, garments of praise and joy. You did this because I might sing praises to you and not be silent. You know, sometimes when you're suffering, you're very quiet. 
you lose motivation to speak. Are you okay? Do you want to talk about it? So you have turned my morning into joyful dancing. You've taken my clothes of mourning and you have clothed me with joy that I may sing praises to you and not be silent. Oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. See, in one Psalm, you have the three seasons represented. Orientation, verses six and seven, first half of verse seven. Disorientation, second half of verse seven, eight, nine, and 10. New orientation, verse 11 and 12. I think we experience these seasons in life. And when we experience these seasons in life, we get very, very disturbed. Because sometimes life can fall apart just like that. You're doing well, and suddenly, everything goes nuts. And you don't know why. Part of you says, maybe you did something wrong. Part of you says, maybe somebody is doing this to me. Part of you says, Lord, I don't deserve this. First, you're mad at others. Next, you're mad at yourself. And if it does not end, ultimately, you become mad at God. How could you do this to me? I was your faithful servant. I'm a pastor. Why am I broke? I'm a pastor. Why did my child fail the entrance test? I'm a pastor. Why could this church do this to me? I'm a faithful disciple of Jesus. Why is my daughter pregnant outside of marriage? I'm a faithful disciple. Why is my son in prison? Always in trouble. I'm a ministry leader. Why are my children addicted to porn and to drugs? We just can't understand. Because we think because we're in the service of God, only good things should happen to us. No. One of the painful realities of life is while bad things are happening to good people, good things are happening to bad people. That's why we get really annoyed. Not just because bad things are happening to good people. But because good things are happening to bad people. When we consider the theology of the, of the book of Psalms, what's the basic theology? I will not go into detail. It will take us forever. But what's basic theology? One, the praise of God. You see God praised in most of the Psalms. Two, a clear portrait of God. They have a very clear understanding of who God is. God as creator, God as rescuer, God as ruler, God as warrior, God as sustainer, God as provider, God as healer. They have a very clear understanding of the Lord. 
And because they have a very clear understanding of the Lord, consequently, they also have a very clear understanding of man. What is man that you are mindful of him? When you have a high view of God, you have a right view of man. When you have a low view of God, you have a conceited view of man. People who think little of God usually think a lot of themselves. But when we think of God the way he is, we find we realize what our rightful place is. We're unworthy, undeserving, but we are grateful for his goodness and his mercy that will follow me all the days of my life. And I, an unworthy person, will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you'd like to follow, starting September, I will study um, 12 Psalms in Insight. Insight is our Friday evening Bible study at 7 o'clock. September, October, and November, I will study the book of Psalms. I will study it exegetically, and the goal is to provide an outline and some basic exegesis so anyone who attends the Bible study can turn it into a Bible study or use that to preach. So if you're interested, you can join. That will begin first week of September. Start the first week of July, we're studying the minor prophets. So if you want to add more information to your understanding of the prophets, that's something you can join too. Sorry, shameless plug. Let's stop here for a minute. I would like to take questions on the book of Psalms, specifically on the book of Psalms, because I think it's important that we address some of these questions, since most of you probably teach from the book of Psalms or preach from the book of Psalms on a regular basis. So if you have any questions, unmute yourself and ask me, please, the next few minutes before we go into the break and then we discuss. Proverbs, I would like to spend some time answering questions. Pastor Sam? Yes, Paul. This is Pastor Melchor of Isabella. Yes, Paul. Yeah, uh, regarding Psalms 22. Yes. Uh, it was uh, mentioned in the, one of the last words of Jesus. Yes. I, rem I remember that, uh, that verse. Is that David prophesying what Jesus will say on that cross? Or was it uh, just, David, why has thou forsaken me? So I just want to ask that part of the psalm. Excellent question. It could be one of the two, or it could be both. Depending on how we approach the psalm, it could be David as a personal confessional talking about how he's feeling. And unknown to him, through his personal confessional, God has made those words prophetic, pointing to Jesus. Or 
it could be David was actually prophesying these words that someday Jesus would speak. Either way, those are powerful words. Whether David did not know, was using these words in reference to himself, but from a prophetic standpoint, God also revealed through David, unknowing to himself about his Messiah in the future. That's one possibility. Another possibility is David knew about his descendant, the Messiah, the son of David, that would one day come and one day be punished because God revealed that to him. So Psalm 22 could be a testimony that is also a prophecy or a prophecy that's also a testimony because both elements are found in the psalm of course there are many people that disagree that it is prophetic because they say this was david talking about his own life at a difficult season in a difficult season of his life and as such should not be read into we should not read jesus words into and the argument is in the old testament whenever you're going through certain difficult situations in life you quote scripture to yourself because these people are great at memorizing it so some people say uh, this is not the fulfillment of prophecy it just was a coincidence jesus was comforting himself by repeating psalm 22 um i lean more towards the psalm being prophetic rather than being something that jesus was using to comfort himself that could also be possible but the the the, the repetition and the situational placement is uncanny so i think whether david was aware of it prophetically and use those words as a prophetic expression or not i cannot say but i wouldn't be surprised if it was prophetic and david knew even if he did not we know what god was doing because it distinctly points out to a son of david of the house of the tribe of judah someday in the future that goes through a season of suffering on the cross and then speaks forth these words. I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Pastor Tavis. Yeah. You're welcome, Bo. Any other questions, please? Uh, how about, Pastor Sam, the, um, how do we distinguish the uh, uh, hymns and spiritual songs? Like, what specific are the uh, spiritual songs and hymns? I don't know if you, if that's clear. Oh, okay. Uh, I think I know what you're trying to say. How can we distinguish if this is a public praise and worship song in the temple or a private outpouring to God because of a personal problem? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yes, yes. Okay. Well, technically, Naman, a song did not have to be a song of praise to be sung in public. Because songs speak to us 
And whatever song speaks to you in the season of your life, you sing. So also when they did praise and worship in public in the temple, depending on the season that the nation was going to, they would sing some of these songs. These songs were more like a declaration. This is what's happening to me. And this song speaks to me. The best way to identify whether it is a song of pure praise or a song of some praise and some confession and some complaint, you have to individually space out the songs. And some songs are all praise. But most of the songs, as you will notice, there are movements within the song. And for that, Naman, we have to go with each individual song. Do you have a psalm in mind that I can that I can go over with you? Are you do you have a certain psalm in your mind when you're talking about this? Uh, not really, Pastor Sam. I was just thinking about the, the New Testament uh, when it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. When you talk to our, uh, you talk to yourself. You make you make melody in your heart to the Lord. You sing hymns and spiritual songs. Just thinking about the differences between those uh, descriptions, maybe. Yeah, the Israelites could say they were very transparent people. They 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 were not ashamed of crying out in public. They were not ashamed of mourning in public. In fact, mourning was a public spectacle. Um, the reason it was a public spectacle is because praise and lament were community events. When you celebrated, you celebrated with your family, your tribe, your clan, and your entire community. And when you mourned, you also did that. That's the reason when people celebrated, they celebrated outside the house. It was an invitation, a testimony. And an invitation testimony look what god has done he has done great things for me blessed be the name of the lord come let's eat so everyone would gather and they would rejoice with you the reason they did that was so that when things went bad they also have the support of people today you celebrate with me because great things are happening tomorrow my life is falling apart would you not want to come and com comfort me Yesterday you celebrated, today would you abandon me in my suffering? You would not. So when they had a party, it was a community event. Look what great things God has done. When bad things happened, it was also a community event. They would go and sit outside their house, in the, in, in, in the uh, front yard or even in the road. And they would tear their clothes and they would put dust on their head and look really pathetic. And the whole community would rally. That's the reason when Ruth and Naomi return back to Bethlehem and everyone recognizes Naomi and was like, hey, Naomi is here, Naomi is here. You know what does she say? She says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Why? Because I'm bitter. My husband's dead, my sons are dead, and now I'm back with nothing. And because the the, the Hebrews, the Israelites were very transparent people. They were not ashamed singing songs of lament in public. It was their way of saying, 
I need some support and encouragement because I'm going through a difficult time. Unfortunately, in sophisticated modern culture, the reason we are depressed and have anxiety attacks and you know all kinds of anxiety disorders is because we our celebrations are public, but our suffering is mostly private. No one's interested in our suffering. If you invite someone to a birthday party in your home, they might want to come. The Philippine society is slightly different because you know how to mourn with others. Wake services and funerals are just as well attended in the Philippines as our birthday parties and the debuts and weddings. In that way, Filipino society, I love Filipino people because you know how to mourn. Even though you don't do any mourning, you go to the wake service and there's a lot of eating and there's a lot of laughing, but at least you're there to support and comfort. The whole point is, even though it's a song of praise, even though it's distinctly a song of lament, we should not think of these songs as publicly sung and privately sung. They could have been publicly sung and privately sung individually, but they were also corporately, publicly sung and privately sung. There was no line that says, this psalm only for private singing, this psalm only for public singing. All 150 psalms, they were all part of the songbook. And they were all sung in the community by everyone. Nothing was secret, even though some of the songs were not as joyful and celebratory as the others. Um, there was a question that was asked that sometimes the singular psalm is used and sometimes the plural psalms are used. I think it's a stylistic thing. It just depends on the version of scripture you're using. Personally, when I refer to the entire book, I call it the Psalms because there are 150. When I'm referring to one Psalm, I don't use Psalms. I say Psalm, Psalm 1, Psalm 10, Psalm 20, so on and so forth. Other people tend to say Psalms 1 or Psalms 10. It's just a stylistic thing because even if we see them individually, they're still part of one book. They're all bound to one another. So whether you say Psalms 1 or Psalm 1, technically you're not wrong. So if you're making a PowerPoint and you're worried about what to say, generally speaking, the prevailing way of Mentioning a psalm is in the singular when it is a single psalm, Psalm 1. And they only use the plural when they use more than one psalms, like Psalms 1 through 10. But I leave that up to you. Either way, you're not breaking the law. It's just a matter of comfort. Some people may agree with you. Some people may disagree with you, but that's all right. Life is not about what other people think of us. We're not bothered about those things. Any other questions? First time I have a question. Yes, Paul. I'm Joshua Paul from uh, yes. Bacor. I just wanted to know, um, um, is it, are the sums, kung, how did they collect it? Or are there any preservations before on how they collect 
those songs? Good question. The Psalms existed in an oral form even before. Remember, they were written during the times of Moses. That's the earliest we can think of. Moses, Asap, Korah, Ethan, Heman. These are all from before the monarchy, before David. That means these songs were passed on in their form from one generation to the other. They're already part of communal singing. Like, for example, some cultures, when they get together as a party, karaoke without the payment. If you go to the provinces during rice planting season or harvesting season, in the provinces, the farmers, while they're working in the fields, they sing. A friend of mine from UP, her, her master's thesis was on these songs, the songs that our farmers in Ilocos and in, uh, in, in Visayas and in Mindanao, different parts of the Philippines, the various songs that farmers sing. And these are the songs that their grandparents and their uh, great-grandparents entrusted to them. So she collected about a hundred and I can't remember, a lot of songs, more than a hundred, maybe around a hundred. She collected these songs and she studied the songs. She studied the melody. She's a musician. She studied the melody. She studied the, the idea, the, the concept behind these. And she also studied how within the Philippines, the songs were different. I forgot the name of that book. I don't even know if it was published. But at that time, she was a very close friend of someone that was very close to me. So whenever we met, I would ask her questions. And it was an interesting discussion because some of these songs, uh, they don't know who wrote them. So when you ask her, where did you collect this? Ah, this is from Ilocos Sur. Uh, who wrote this song? Nobody knows. How did you find this song? Well, I went and asked in the farming communities, and this is the song they sing for planting, and this is the song they sing for harvest. Now, there are two prevailing themes that you identify in the songs that our farmers sing. Planting season is a song of hope. Makes sense, right? You're planting rice. And you're hoping for a bountiful harvest. Fair weather, plenty of water, plenty of sunshine, no pests, no, no storm, no flood. You want to make sure everything you invest in the ground will bear fruit. So the songs they sing distinctly during planting season are songs of hope. And now, interestingly, the songs that they sing during harvest are songs of thanksgiving, songs of celebration. They are happy that what they have planted has now borne fruit. So also, when we're looking at the book of Psalms, we do not really know if we are missing any. There is a possibility. But because it was an oral transmission culture, Israel, these songs were passed from generation to generation. These are the songs your grandmother sang to you and your mother sang to you as a lullaby, as a family devotional song, or as a song when you went to the tabernacle 
or a song when you're going up to Jerusalem, the songs of ascent. These are songs your neighbors sang when they were happy. These are songs that your family sang when there were bad things happening to them. These are songs you grew up with. They became part of your story. So just as your grandmother sang to your mom and your mom sang to you, when you have your own child, it's the same song you sing. So in many ways, these songs in their oral form, not in their written form, primarily in their oral form, passed on from generation to generation from as early as the time of Moses or probably even before until the time of the Babylonian exile. When the children of Israel went into exile, they were there for about 70 years. That's when they realized so many of us died and there's a possibility we may die here in a foreign land. Somebody needs to preserve our history, our story, our music, our song. Out of that need, they began to put everything in writing. So when they returned from Babylon back to Israel in the time of Zerubbabel, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when they were rebuilding the nation, by that time, these 150 Psalms, among all the other songs that were sung, these 150 songs were collected and preserved in their written form and then passed on to future generations. And that's how we get these songs. Thank you. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes, definitely. Thank you. Okay. Pastor Melchor. Yes. I think we should do this book. Because the songs that I hear from the north, they're so beautiful. I don't understand them, Naman. But the, the melody. So maybe our lighthouse pastors from different parts of the country, we can collect these songs. Yeah. This is also part of our story, Naman, culturally. These are the songs of our people. So maybe we should collect these songs and put them together so we won't lose them. Because one by one, farming communities are disappearing. Machines are taking over. Machines, Naman, don't sing. Amen to that. Yeah, maybe we should collect that. All right, it's 4.06. Take a 10-minute break. Come back at 4.20. Maybe 15-minute break. Come back at 4.20, and the last few minutes, we will study the book of Proverbs, and we will try to bring everything to an end. Hi, Pastor Sam. You hear me? Joshua, yeah. Uh, this is Joshua again. Um, just a follow-up question from the question I asked earlier. So is there any possibility that um, Israel in, in our generation now is still singing hymns or songs from uh, the yes. Bible? Yes. Like if you go to Israel now, many of these songs are still sung. And most probably in their exact form, like Hebrew is... There's only one way to pronounce it if you do the right, if you pronounce it the right way. So the, the rabbis and, and, and the religious leaders in, in, in uh, Israel, they still sing these songs. In fact, I, I once had a conversation with, uh, I used to go to New York. My cousins used to live there. So I used to go to New York uh, often. Um, 
not cousins as in biological cousins, church cousins. You know, the titas and the titos. <laughs> and then, yeah. yeah. So I used to visit them and um, I had some conversations with um, a rabbi. Very interesting conversation with him. And it was very clear while their knowledge of the New Testament is very shallow uh, or not as complete, maybe shallow is a harsh word, their understanding of the Old Testament is amazing. And every once in a while, in the middle of the conversation, he would sing a song. And I would recognize some words because I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I'm just a student. So I would recognize some words and I would say, hey, that's Psalm 36. Then he's like, yes. It is one of the songs. That's the kind of people they are. Like, for example, somebody comes over to your home and you cook them your favorite dish. Everybody eats your favorite dish and everybody's fully satisfied and the, the dishes are in the sink and you move to the living room. Everybody has a cup of hot chocolate or a, or a cup of coffee or maybe they're eating ice cream. And out of this, this joy, somebody will sing a line from a song, and then everybody joins in. That's Israelite culture. Usually it's not one person singing, it's one person starting. And then the whole community joins. And together they celebrate. They celebrate the joy in this man's heart. Also, when you go to a funeral, or when you go to a burial, and the person who has lost a loved one, start singing a sad song the entire community joins in that's why they all knew these songs by heart which is why as a pastor i like the idea of praise and worship team members memorizing the song no more sheets no more stands in front so that when you sing the song comes from your heart your eyes are closed your heart is elevated and and placed before God, and the song bursts forth. In Israel, that's how they sang. They memorized the song. It became a part of them, and as such, transmitting it orally to another generation was easy. If somebody asks you, uh, how did you get saved? You don't need to open your phone and look at notes. Your salvation story is real to you today as it was when you first got saved if somebody asks me when were you saved how were you saved who was preaching i will never forget those details i don't need a codigo to consult and in many ways in israel their songbook was in their heart not in their hand unfortunately when the song that you sing comes out of your hand and out of your lips, it is just something you go through, but not something you live. So these songs, they were passed on from generation to generation, not as a written book. Oh, son, I collected the, my favorite songs. I made a mixtape for you. You're too young. Uh, the cassette season is gone. Uh, I made a CD for you or a thumb drive for you. Yo, that's better. And then you pass it on. But in those days, a father and a mother passed on the songs of their family, the songs of their tribe, the songs of their community by singing it with their children. That's how the children memorize these songs. So technically, our idea, like there's a PowerPoint 
So when we sing, we're looking at the PowerPoint and we are following. That did not happen in, the, in, in Israel, in ancient Israel. And it doesn't happen even to this day. I remember the rabbi telling me, when someone is looking for lyrics, we know they are visitors and non-Jews. Because all Jewish people that attend that synagogue or that small community, they all know these songs. These songs that are 100 years old, 300 years old, centuries old, they know these songs. So maybe they do not sing all of those songs today, but most of the songs they still sing. They also have some new songs added. Ah. Do we have, from a vocabulary standpoint, do we have different words for trials and tribulations? Yes. Dame, so many. So many. Generally speaking, they all have the same meaning. Specifically, they have distinctions like, one tribulation could be something you cause yourself. It's an emotional disturbance. And there's a different word for physical ailment. Then there could be another word for foreign invasion. So yes, there are plenty of words. Plenty of words. Any other questions while we're waiting? I don't have to pee. Pastor Sam? Yes, Paul. Pastor Melchor again. Is there any specific tune that they really play? Is to as they pass on the the lyrics or the the wordings of the the psalm, do they also pass on a certain like beat or something? Because I remember Paul Wilbur always used like marching marching beat or something like Paul Wilbur, the Jewish yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good question. Um, some of the Psalms, if you notice in the, in the uh, superscription, right, in the heading, it says, to the tune of. Those songs, I think, are songs that you must strictly follow that specific tune. But there are some Psalms that do not have any indicator to the choir director, to the tune of so-and-so. Sometimes some songs don't have that, but those psalms I do not know the answer. I do not know if they followed what's the last tune they heard, or it was common knowledge to everyone, so they didn't need to put any specific uh, indicator there. But some psalms come with instructions to the tune of this, and this is a muscle, or this is this, or this is that. So some psalms have indicators, some do not. So the ones with tunes assigned to them, I would like to believe that they were sung exactly that way. But the other songs, interesting question, unfortunately, I don't know the answer to that. I do not know if a certain tune was followed or each generation made up their own personal tune to it. But because they were very careful in following tradition, I would like to believe that they followed the tune that they have heard since they were children and in and doing so perhaps preserved the original tune unless over seasons the pacing of the song became faster or slower um, more solemn 
more celebratory and so on and so forth. Wait, somebody asked me a question, but I was not able to read that. How do I read the questions? Uh, wait, oh, there. Okay. Ah, someone asks me a, asked, asked a question. What's the difference between a test and a temptation? That's a theologically loaded question. You guys ask very difficult questions. You should ask that to Pastor Albert, not me. Yeah. What? Okay, let's look at it from a um, basic standpoint. I mean, we could go like sit around and talk about test and temptation for three hours and bring in James and everybody else. Uh, James as in the letter. Um, from a broad perspective, a test is to prove your relationship right. A temptation is to prove your relationship wrong. Let me explain. God tested Abraham. Take your son, your only son, your son whom you love, Isaac, and bring him to this mountain that I will show you and you sacrifice him. That's not a temptation. The goal of this test is for God to reveal to Abraham something he has not previously revealed about himself. A test always accomplishes something positive according to the will of God. In the Garden of Eden, the, the devil did not test Eve. It tempted Eve. So if you go by this, the point of a test is to build on our current knowledge and experience of God. So we would discover something more about God than we already know about him. For instance, I read somewhere, I think this is Pastor Vlad Savchuk. Uh, you, you might have seen this in, uh, in, in Facebook. He says, the whole point of the test for Abraham in God asking him to give up Isaac, the point of the test was God did not want to remove Isaac from Abraham's life. He wanted to remove Isaac from Abraham's heart. Why? Abraham's heart belonged solely to God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And for as long as Isaac takes up a huge part of Abraham's heart, there is not enough room for Abraham to devote to God in his heart. So that was a test. And when we look at it retrospectively, there was already a plan in place. Isaac asks, Father, we have firewood, we have fire, and we have the knife, but we don't have the animal for sacrifice. And Abraham says, God himself will provide the animal for sacrifice. But the story up until then shows us very clearly, Isaac was the animal. We know, Naman, retrospectively, God provided a substitute, a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. And God preserves Isaac. God 
offers the ram, the substitute is sacrificed, and Isaac and Abraham go home. Whatever Abraham knew about God, before he went up the mountain, you and I can be absolutely sure he knew a lot more about God coming down the mountain. Whatever Moses knew before he went up the mountain, you and I can be absolutely sure he knew a lot more when he came down the mountain. Our test is meant to bring us to a place of desperate desire for God. And in our desperation, discover so much more about him than we have not known previously. A test is from God. A temptation is from the enemy. A temptation is to prove to us that what we know about God is not true. Case in point, when the devil tempts Jesus three times. If you are truly the son of God, why? Jesus does not know he's the son of God. Remember, just before he went into the wilderness to be tempted by the, drivel, uh, by the devil, uh, Mark says he was driven into the wilderness by the spirit. Just before he went into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and 40 nights of fasting, what happened? Baptism. What happened during baptism? The heavens were torn apart. And a dove came down. And a voice was heard. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God already spoke to Jesus. I love you. You are my beloved son. I am pleased with you. So Jesus goes to the wilderness to be tempted to, to, to fast and pray. When he comes out, guess what the enemy says? This is not a test. This is a temptation. The goal of the temptation is to disprove what you know about God. The goal of a test is to prove and to enhance your understanding of God. So the enemy says to the, says to the Lord, if you are truly the son of God, you, you can turn these stones into bread. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. So one after the other, fall down, worship me. I'll give you everything. Jump, nothing will happen. Let's see if you're truly the son of God. Jesus had a very clear understanding of his identity. So the goal of the temptation was to put doubt in Jesus' mind. What if I'm not the son? Let's find out. Abracadabra, stones turn to bread. Voila, no pandisal. That's the whole point. So, to answer your question, the point of a test is to prove what you know about God and for you to discover so much more about Him. So, do we get tested? Yes. What's the point of this test? For us to know more about God. And grow in our relationship with him. But the point of a temptation is to destroy our walk with God. We can discuss this in greater detail some other time. But that's the fundamental difference as I see it. Between a test and a temptation. So now you know what's a test and what's a temptation. So when you are tested, don't complain. Because the outcome of the test is to prove what you know is true. 
Only bad students complain about an exam. Good ones don't. You know why? They're ready. Um, wait. There was another question, actually, a couple of questions. These are good questions. I'm very excited. And if you know me, you learn better by asking questions. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. Psalm 133. Wow. The first verse is talking about unity. Then in the second verse, it talks about precious oil. What is this verse in reference to? Good question. Is this verse referring to um, uh, unity or anointing? Ah, okay. All right. Psalm 133, uh, very long psalm, has just a few verses. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. If you notice, first thing, it's a song of ascent. While you're going up Jerusalem, you sing this song. You're surrounded with people, surrounded with brothers. So it makes sense that you sing a song celebrating unity when you're with so many people around you. Now this is a joint song. You're not singing just by yourself. You're singing it with everybody else. How good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It is like, it's a comparison, like a precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. Is this about anointing or is this about unity? The song celebrates unity, but in many ways it refers to a historical event when Aaron and his sons were anointed by Moses and the entire community as priests over Israel. And why does it talk about precious oil? Is it precious because it represents anointing or is it precious because it is like the alabaster jar that somebody broke open, the woman broke open and anointed Jesus' feet? It is precious because it is tied up with an important event. It could also be a special kind of oil. We don't know. In those days, the general oil that was used for anointing was olive oil, and olives were plenty in those days. So there is a possibility it was not precious. But there is a slight distinction here. The anointing of Aaron was before they entered the promised land. The promised land was a land flowing with milk and honey. The anointing happened when Aaron and the children of Aaron were in the wilderness. The anointing was while they were wandering around the wilderness. That means oil was in short supply. Either it was hard to come by or it was the oil that they brought with them out of Egypt. There could be a possibility it was precious because it cost them a lot of money. Maybe they had to butter a camel or a goat or a cow or whatever to someone else to get that oil. Or it was precious because they carried it all over the uh, place from Egypt, Egypt across the Red Sea. I don't know. Honestly, I really don't know. But the song celebrates unity 
but the oil being poured down is in reference to a historic event when Aaron and his children were anointed with oil. Why does he talk specifically about running down the head, uh, from the head into his beard? Because in those days, anointing was not a drop. Like nowadays when we pray for people, we do this to the oil and we make a small sign of the cross. The most you can see is like oil stain on the forehead. In those days, when you went to the altar, man, they poured like a liter of oil over your head. Cooking oil, put, cut open the sachet and then shampoo it all over your head. That's why. It means as it flows down, anointing, an abundance of anointing. God is not stingy. God is generous. So when they pour down the oil, they're making sure that the oil drips all the way down. All the way down his robe. Meaning that's a lot of oil. So it talks about unity, but it is in reference to a time when Aaron and his children are anointed. Now, what's the current connotation? Like, for example, like right now, modern day. Look at verse 3. It is as if dew of Hermon were fa falling on Mount Zion. Hermon was high elevation. There was no snow in Jerusalem, but it was on Hermon. So what the writer of the psalm is saying is, there is going to be a time, maybe now, maybe in the future, when unity among brethren, From what between one another would eventually become our anointing in God and bring about evenness in the land. What's on Mount Hermon far away will also be experienced in Zion. The same thing will happen. Um, there were other questions. Uh, just a minute. I, I have to constantly go. Ah, canonical criteria for including the Psalms into the book of Psalms. Very good question. Unfortunately, I do not have a short answer to it, but I'll attempt. And if a short answer is not satisfying to you, you can send me a private message. Remind me again, then I'll send you a long answer. Most of the Old Testament was already in its complete form when the New Testament was being decided upon. So canonically speaking, the Old Testament was already the Bible of Jesus, the Bible of Peter, the Bible of Paul. So when the Apostle Paul talks about all scripture is God-breathed, he's not talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Bible of Jesus, Genesis to Malachi. And as such, it was not the responsibility of the modern church, the post-Acts chapter 2 church, to determine whether a book belonged in the Old Testament or not. That was already settled on by the Jewish religious authorities. So the 39 books of the Old Testament, we didn't have to tinker with them. They were already settled. It was already the complete form. We just added it to the 27 books of the New Testament. So in many ways, canonical criteria 
was more intentionally applied to the books of the New Testament, the Gospels, the letters of Paul, the general epistles, and the works of John and Revelation. So canonical criteria, the criteria of authenticity, for those of you that are interested, there is a beautiful book by Bruce Metzger. Difficult to read, but interesting. Uh, it explains this in more detail. I cannot go into that because we'll be here until tomorrow. Anyway, the criteria of authenticity was primarily a concern for the New Testament. The Old Testament was already in its final form. So we didn't have to deal with questions wherein we were like, what some goes in, what some goes out. That decision has already been made and those Psalms were handed to us in their final form. The modern church, the post acts of apostles church, our responsibility in the various councils was to determine what books would we include in the New Testament. And the criteria of authenticity was applied to these books. And so, after strict application of the criteria of authenticity, we ended up with the four Gospels, the Book of Acts, the Letters of Paul, the General Epistles, the Letters of John, and the Book of Revelation. One last question before we hit Proverbs. If you hear me typing, I'm just replying to one of my elders. You can ask, I'm paying attention. No more questions? All right. Oh, wait. Did anybody ask questions in the chat? Let me check. I don't want you to think that I ignored you. Okay. No questions. All right. Proverbs. <gasps> um, the book of Proverbs is assigned to Solomon, meaning attributed to Solomon. But some of these Proverbs are probably not his. Since they collect wisdom, they are wisdom-oriented culture. Some of these Proverbs were collected by Solomon, but they were not written by him. Most of them may have been written by him, and maybe they were edited by him as he collected them. but they're generally attributed to him, but they're part of an ancient tradition. How do we know that other people invested? That's not the word I'm looking for. Contributed. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Sorry, old age. How do we know others have contributed to this collection? Chapter 30, verse 1, and chapter 31, verse 1. So we see there are others who also contributed to the book of Proverbs besides Solomon. According to chapter 25, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 1, part of the collection was gathered by the men of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah ruled Israel long after Solomon died. That means even though most of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs today were put together during the time of Solomon. Other Proverbs were added to the book after his death. So we cannot say with certainty that the final form, the current form, the 31 chapters that we have in our possession were already in that form when Solomon died. 
maybe there were not as many. The people of Israel kept collecting and adding to these proverbs. Some of these proverbs have parallels in ancient Near East, meaning Hittite culture, Assyrian culture, Sumerian culture, Babylonian culture, the Persian culture, the Egyptian culture, and the various peoples, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and, and, and the other peoples of Canaan, they also have similar proverbs. So is it possible these proverbs also existed in this exact form or a slightly variant form in other cultures? Quite possible. So are these proverbs the inspired word of God? Well, wisdom comes from the Lord. All wisdom, even wisdom from other peoples, where do they get their wisdom? Not from the devil. They get it from the Lord. We can discuss that part of the canonical issues with Proverbs at some other time, because once again, we'll be here for a long time. Let's look at the general aspect, because this is Old Testament survey. Let's look at the basic ideas behind the book of Proverbs. So the what is a proverb? Let's start defining it. A proverb is a wise saying that comes out of observation. Of what? Observation of human nature, observation of human conduct, and occasionally animal behavior. Locusts, rabbits, lizards, spiders, ants, so on and so forth. What's the goal of a proverb? The goal of a proverb is to capture a certain truth in a brief manner, with brevity, so that it could be easily remembered. That's the reason a proverb is one or two lines, at the most four lines. Because the goal of collecting these wise sayings is for you to remember. That's the reason we remember idioms. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. All that glitters is not gold. So someone just asked me, how do you distinguish between knowledge and wisdom? Ah, knowledge is information. Wisdom is knowledge applied to life situations. Meaning, you could be very knowledgeable and still be very unwise. Wisdom is the information that you gather contributes to your knowledge of the subject. But if you apply that information that you have collected and stored in your memory into your life, it becomes wisdom. So for instance, learning the word of God helps us grow in the knowledge of God's word. But until we put it into practice, the fear of the Lord is not our wisdom, is not the beginning of wisdom. So, basic distinction between knowledge and wisdom is this. Knowledge is what you collect. Wisdom is how you apply what you collect. That's why young people know a lot. Older people are wise. Occasionally you have a younger person who is also wise, and occasionally you also have an older person that is not wise. Those are exceptions to the rule. But generally speaking, we think of older people 
as wiser people because they have applied their knowledge in life situations. For instance, you know how to make a baby. You learned that in sex ed class. Basic human anatomy. What happens in order for a man and a woman to produce a child? But to father or to mother a child requires wisdom. It takes knowledge to get somebody pregnant. But it takes wisdom to raise a child. So from the proverbial standpoint, from wisdom standpoint, wisdom literature distinguishes between knowledge and wisdom because knowledge is the acquisition of information. Wisdom is the application of that acquired knowledge. I hope this answers your question. From a literal standpoint, proverbs have a lot of literary devices. We call them devices because they use this. I would highlight a few, but Pastor Alex will go into more detail when he teaches hermeneutics. I also do not want to steal his thunder and give him the opportunity to really explain well, because I know he will. But I would like to go with the basics. First, antithetic parallelism, wherein the second line of a proverb is the opposite of the first line. Um, um, sorry, I put my Bible somewhere. Um, let me look at, if you have your Bibles, please turn to, um, where's my Bible? Uh, please turn to Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. Let's look at examples. Antithetic parallelism. Parallelism is two lines speaking similar messages. Antithetic parallelism. So, chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord detests dishonest scales. Look at the second line. But accurate weights find favor with him. The first line and the second line of the Proverbs reveal to us two varying ideas. First line, God does not like people who cheat with weights. Second line, God loves and bestows favor on anyone who does not cheat with weights in the palenque. Another example, Proverbs um, 15. Look at Proverbs 15, verse 17. Antithetic parallelism. First line, better as, I'm, I'm reading in the New International Version, better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. Once again, line one, line two, opposite ideas. In modern terms, better eat raw ampalaya that is served with love than have a cheesecake with someone who hates you. Yay. Raw ampalaya. No, no. Jesus, no, no. But chapter 15, verse 17. Antithetic parallelism is, if there are two lines in the proverb, one line is distinctly the exact opposite of the other line. So first line, one idea. Second line, an entirely different idea. 
That is antithetic parallelism. So better a small serving of vegetables with someone you love, enjoyed in the presence of someone you love, and or rather than eating a fattened calf with someone you hate. Synonymous parallelism. Obviously, the second line repeats the basic point of the first line in slightly different words. So Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7. If you see Proverbs 4, verse 7, you see both lines basically present the same idea, just in an intensified form. Proverbs 4, 7. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Verse 2, a line 2. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. Meaning, at any cost, make sure you acquire wisdom. That's the idea. It's just presented differently. How about other forms of, forms of parallelism? There is such a thing called progressive parallelism. Meaning, the writer of the proverb begins a certain idea in line one. Line two completes the idea that began with line one. So that means if you remove line one, line two loses its punch. If you remove line two, you won't understand what's the whole point of line one. Progressive parallelism. Um, look at Proverbs chapter 14, verse 7. Stay away from a fool. That's line one. Progressive parallelism. Now, line two will complete the idea that began with line one. For you will not find knowledge on their lips. If you remove the second line, stay away from a fool. Yeah, we know the man not to go mingle with fools. But why? Is there a specific reason why you do not want us to stay with fools? Yes. What's the specific reason? You will not find knowledge and wisdom on their lips. What will you find on the lips of a fool? Foolishness. So progressive parallelism is you begin an idea in one line and you complete the idea in the second line. So if one of the lines is missing, then the proverb does not make any sense. Uh, another example, Proverbs 22, verse 6, a very popular verse. So, in the New International Version, this is what it says. Start children off on the way they should go. Why? Even when they're old, they would not turn from it. If you start teaching your children good things, when they are young, they will continue to practice it even when they are older in life. Progressive parallelism is whatever the idea that starts in verse one, line one are completed in line two. Sometimes some proverbs have numbers. Example, Proverbs chapter 30. If you have your Bibles, Turn to Proverbs 30. Let's read from verses 24 to 28. Bear with me. This is a unique proverb. 
four things on earth are small. Talking about four things. Yet, they're extremely wise. Four things are small, but they're very wise. What are these four things? First thing, ants are creatures of little strength. Progressive parallelism. The idea is completed, yet they store up their food in the summer. Thing number two, badgers or hyraxes or conies, depending on your translation, are creatures of little power. Yet, progressive parallelism, the idea is complete. They make their home in crevices of rock, in the crags. Thing number three, remember four things eh, that are small. Small thing number three, locusts have no king. Progressive parallelism. The idea is completed, yet they advance together in swarms or in large ranks. Small thing number small, uh, four, a lizard can be caught with your hand. Progressive parallelism, the idea is complete, yet it is found where? It is found in king's palaces. So, now let's look at the next few verses, verses 29 to 31. We just talked about four things. Ants, hyraxes, locusts, and lizards. Depending on your translation, sometimes it's a spider, sometimes it's a coney, sometimes it's a rabbit. Beside the point. Four small things. First line presents an idea, second line completes it. Without the second line, you're like, okay, what's the point? It's like an unfinished story. Now, verses 29 to 31. There are three things that are stately in their stride. Verse 24 said, four things on earth that are small, yet extremely wise. Verse 29, three things. From four, we got to three. Three things that are stately in their stride. Four that move with stately bearing. Wait, three, four, let's see. Verse 30, a lion mighty among beasts who retreats before nothing. Two, a strutting rooster. Three, a he goat. And four, a king secure against revolt. So you notice progressive parallelism. Three things that are stately in their stride. The idea completed with four things that move stately with stately bearing. Stately in their stride, three things. Lion, a rooster, and a he-goat. Now, the rooster and the he-goat, there's a little bit of uh, irony and sarcasm there. Compared to a lion, where there's true regal bearing a rooster and a goat well they walk like they're the lion but they're not the lion four the real idea here is a king secure against revolt he's not afraid he does not look over his shoulder proverbs also have allegory an image that makes sense on a surface level but also has a deeper level meaning there is meaning on the top, but if you dig into it, there is more meaning at the bottom. For that, we go to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs 5, 
Let's look at verses 15 through 23. Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 23. Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. What does it mean? On a business level, do not cheat. On a morality level, be satisfied with what you have. On a marital level, do not commit adultery. Be satisfied with your husband. Be satisfied with your wife. If you're a businessman, be satisfied with your business and earn profit legitimately. Do not cheat your customers. On a personal morality level, live your life well, meaning drink water from your own cistern. From an idolatry standpoint, do not chase after other gods and goddesses. Worship the Lord, your God. Running water from your own well. Do not borrow theological concepts and premises from other nations around you. Be satisfied with divine revelation that God has revealed through Moses. So depending on what perspective you're looking for, an allegory is you have different levels of meaning. Verse 16, should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares. Verse 17, let them be yours alone never to be shared with strangers. Some blessings are meant for you. Don't sell your children. Don't loan your husband or your wife. That's God's blessing for you. You can loan your car, but not your husband. You can lend your computer, but not your wife. We know naman, what can be lent, what can be borrowed. Sir, can I please borrow your, uh, your, your, your children? I'm sorry. You can borrow my phone, but not, not my children or my wife or my husband. Right? Let them be yours alone, meaning take ownership of what you believe. It should be a part of you. If you don't take ownership of your theology, it's just an opinion. It has to be a part of you. Verse 18, may your fountain be blessed. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Ah, now we know the main thrust of the passage. It's the context of marital relationship. Until you read verse 18, things are not clear. I will not go into verse 19 to 23. That's for married people. I don't want to discuss. I'm single. I should not be talking about that. Uh, Pastor Albert, Pastor Leo, Pastor Alex and the other pastors who are married, they are more competent, single people. No, no, bad idea. So we read verse 15, 16, 17. You're like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, maybe theological, maybe practical, maybe business, maybe commercial. When we get to verse 18, we're like, oh, I know the context. What's the context? Marriage. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be satisfied with the woman you fell in love. Professed your undying love and devotion to, entered into a covenant 
of marriage. Be faithful to her. What does this mean? Don't stare at other women. It's wrong. Don't wonder what it would be like if you're married to that man's wife or this woman's husband. It's wrong. By Jesus' definition, that's adultery. Even entertaining an idea of what it would be like to be married to that beautiful woman or this good-looking man is wrong because you are supposed to fantasize only about your husband, your wife. Actually, that's not a good word. Think about. So until we get to verse 18, we do not know what the main thrust of verses 15, 16, and 17 are. Verse 20, I will skip 19, uh, verse 20. Why my son be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? Why do you want to sleep with somebody else and commit adultery? Young man. Why do you want to go to a prostitute and be fornicators? Now we know Proverbs 15, 5, verses 15 through 23, the context is marriage, personal purity. If you are single, wait until you get married before you enjoy sexual intimacy because God established sexual intimacy to be enjoyed in the framework of a marriage. What does this mean for single people? Masturbation is wrong. Because that is a substitute for sexual intimacy in the framework of a marriage. So I'm sorry if this bothers you, if you're single. Masturbation is a sin. Because that pleasure should only be found in the context of a committed relationship to the wife you commit your life to. So when you're studying Proverbs 5 verses 15 through 23, initially you have no idea what this is about. It could be business. It could be theology. It could be theory, profession. But when we get to 18, we realize, oh, oh, the context is marital relationships, marriage, and personal purity. So verse 20, the warning, why my son be intoxicated with another man's wife? Be satisfied with your own. This is why young people should not rush into marrying the first person that they're attracted to. There's a possibility a few years down the line, you might be attracted to somebody else. So this is my principle. You may have heard this. Uh, I've probably said this before. I'd rather be single wishing I was married than be married wishing I was single. Get me? So think twice before you get married. And whomever you marry, die with that person. Grow old with that person and die with that person. Do not entertain any other person with your body, with your head, or with your heart. So, my son, do not be intoxicated with another man's wife. And if you're single, my son, do not embrace the, the bosom of a wayward woman. 
Don't fornicate. Don't be an adulterous person. Practice purity. Before you're married, stay pure. After you're married, practice covenantal purity by remaining faithful to your wife. Occasionally, Proverbs takes on a teaching tone. Um, Proverbs chapter 7. Let's look at verses 6 through 23. Uh, it's 5 o'clock. Please bear with me. After this, I'm going to shut up and you, you don't have to see my face for a long, long time. It's all right. Persevere. Verse 6. We won't study the entire chapter in a month, but just a Go few. Ahead, sir. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But, but others may not be as excited as you, brother. So <clears throat> I want to be fair. Proverbs 7. Let's look at verse 6 onwards. At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young women, young men, a youth who had no sense. Uh, makes sense. He was going down the street near her corner. Who stands on the corner? Apparently, not just in modern times. You know where the idea comes from? In ancient cities, Street lights were not in every place along the street. They were only on the corners where the pavement is wide enough so that the light would show, would illuminate the intersection because that's where accidents happen. So whenever there was an intersection, the four corners of the street, there was a street light. It brought light to the entire intersection. So in case people were crossing, they would not be run over. The rest of the street was not illuminated. Only the corner of the street. So if a prostitute wanted to be seen, guess where she stood? In the corner of the street. That's the reason we have this common saying that says, oh, are you standing in the corner of the street? Are you looking for someone? I think it's sexist because men also do weird stuff standing in the corner like drug addicts and pushers and pets. But that's where it came from. So in the book of Proverbs, apparently, women who stood out on the corners are women of questionable reputation because in ancient Israelite society, Women rarely stood by themselves anywhere. They were always accompanied by a father or a husband, a son, or a brother. According to Sharia law, in modern Muslim countries, you cannot venture out in certain nations except when accompanied by a father, if you're single, a brother, if you're single, an uncle, if your father was not available or dead, or your husband and son if you're married. If you are seen in the companionship of a man who is not your husband, not your father, not your son, not your mother, not your husband, you are whipped. And in some places, stoned to death. Even if Sexual impurity, adultery has not been established. The very fact that you're seen in the companionship, in the company of another man, not related by blood or by marriage, you, you are bound to be put to death. So sometimes 
Proverbs takes on a didactic tone. And the rest of the uh, proverb you can read. So let me end with this. If you read all 31 Proverbs, there are two classes of people. Very simple and amazingly clear. As far as the book of Proverbs is concerned, there are two kinds of people. The wise were also the righteous and the fools were also wicked. Fool in the book of Proverbs is not an idiot. A fool in the book of Proverbs is someone who does not acknowledge God. In our idea, a fool is an idiot or a stupid person. But in the book of Proverbs, you could be very wise, meaning you could be a successful businessman, you could be the professor in a university, you could be Albert Einstein. But if you did not acknowledge God, and in order to acknowledge God, you have to know him. In order to know him, you have to fear him. Why? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you don't have wisdom, that's because you do not fear God. You do not fear God because you do not acknowledge him. So there are two classes of people. The wise people who are righteous because they fear God and they have wisdom. And the fools who do not fear God, therefore do not have wisdom and as such are also wicked. Here's the interesting part. There was no middle ground. Isn't it strange? There's no in-between. You are either wise or you're foolish. There was no half and half. In Israelite society, there is no... He's not very good, Naman, but he's also not very bad. He's not a bad person. I mean, he's not a saint. He's not like a bad person. He's yeah, he's kind of bad, but he's okay. He's not like you know killing people, raping women, and robbing banks. In Israel, there was no in between. You know what's strange? Modern world is all about in between. You know what happens in between? Compromise. In the Old Testament. There was no room for compromise. Either you had conviction or you had conceit. There was no middle ground. Either you fear the Lord and that would be the beginning of wisdom that would lead you to righteousness or you re refuse to acknowledge God and continue to live in wickedness. So Psalm 1 boils it down to us. The righteous, the wise, the ones who do not sit, stand, and walk with the mockers, fools, and wicked. They are like a tree planted by flowing water. Lush green with lives, a life, and bearing fruit in their respective seasons. But the wicked, ah, the wicked are like shaft that will float away aimlessly, gathered up and put to fire. That brings us to an end of our.
our discussion Old Testament. So, in the next, I will finalize all the material I would like for you. I'm trying to give you material that you can use for the for a long time. I mean, not complete, but in case you can't afford to buy several books, enough material for you to use. All right. Bless you. I leave you in the capable hands of Pastor Alex. If you have any, you know, I have to run down to meet one of my elders. Thank God Thank you, for your interest you, in the Mr. Old Testament. May the Lord up to you. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. God bless you, Paul. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye, Paul. God bless you.